So anyway, we go out to eat, and we're, we're sitting at this wonderful restaurant. And, um, and, and so there's eight, eight pastors all together. And you can imagine what eight pastors talk about when they get together in any sort of meeting like that. And they talk about the churches they're at. And so um, I, for one, was talking about how, you know, I'm not trying to like butter you all up, but how great God has been doing and what God has been doing at Harvest Hill. Have we've, we've been seeing people come to know the Lord and enter into a relationship with God for the very first time. We've been seeing people grow in their relationship with God, and we've been seeing new faces um, almost every week coming in. And, and so there's some hurdles with that that we're trying to figure out as a church um, about how to you know, make sure that people are getting connected and feeling like we want them here and stuff like that. And, and so anyway, I was singing your praises, so you're welcome. And um, and some of the other pastors were too, but the majority of the pastors were talking about some of the difficult things they've been going through within the last year um, at their particular church. And um, it surprised me that five out of the eight of us, because I was thinking about that week, how many were actually were there um, that were sharing about the same thing, had gone through a church split just within that year. A church split. And, and if you didn't, see, Harvest Hill was not a church split. It was a church plant. And there's a huge difference. But some people say that, you know, they're breaking from a church to go plant a church when really it's a split. They, there's some sort of disciplinary issue they can't seem to get past. I understand sometimes you, we've got to leave churches because there's issues there and, and the leadership is not dealing with those issues. So there are, there's a backing for that. But they had gone through a church split. And uh, even though this was a very difficult conversation that was going through, we began to lighten the mood because we started talking about what some of those new church splits decided that they were going to name their new church. And if you've ever encountered a church split, you should always ask, how'd you come about your name? Um, I, I don't know the full story about Harvest Hill, but, um, you know, I kind of can get it with the name of it. But they were talking about, you know, it's kind of funny because usually when people go through a church split and they go to start a new church, they always named the new church what they felt they didn't see in the old church. And so some of the new church's names were, we preach the whole word church. Ouch. Uh, here. Uh, this is the name of one of the new churches. All are welcome church. Open arms church. The real church. I, I thought that was funny because I guess that means every other church is a figment of our imagination. We just one church had the audacity to break and to begin to name their church the New First Baptist Church. <laughs> Technically, it's true, though, right? Technically. They were the new First Baptist Church compared to the one they just left, which was the older First Baptist Church. But man, you talk about making a statement. And so we started laughing. And, and as I was, I was thinking about that conversation in this text this morning, I wonder why, because I Googled it and I couldn't find any. I wonder why there aren't any churches that name their church, We Wash Feet Church. <laughs> Hard to get volunteers. Maybe that's what it is. It's hard to get volunteers. It's maybe hard to explain. So what church do you go to? We wash feet. Can you imagine that, being in that conversation? Where, where do you go? We wash feet. Oh. So what do you do? What would you do at We Wash Feet Church? 
you, you would assume we wash feet. And I think it's a missed opportunity because you know how churches, we have like HH for Harvest Hill and, and stuff like that, but we wash feet church has some really cool initials, WWF. Now, how cool would that be? We had a, a Hulk Hogan here last night, but how cool would that be when people ask you where you go to church? Well, I'm a member of the WWF. <laughs> I guess we wash feet church is kind of like the, the whole Judas name for children. You know, you just don't see very many Facebook posts coming out to say, oh, welcome to the world, our little Judas, um, which is a shame because Judas comes from Judah, which means praise the Lord or praising God. Um, but because of this one event that happened leading up to our passage this morning, Judas is now associated with a traitor. But we wash feet, church. Jesus wanted a very specific message to be passed along here with this event, and I don't think his disciples fully got it. And to kind of lead up to what's happening, the Gospels record that throughout this week of, of Passover, and, and there's a lot of similarities between the Old Testament Passover and New Testament Passover. They're both the liberation of God's people. Old Testament is liberation from the physical bondage of slavery. New Testament, with Jesus here, is the liberation of God's people from the spiritual bondage of slavery. But leading up through these events and, you know, through the, the parade coming in on Monday or on, on Sunday and the, the tossing of the temple tables on Monday and the tests on Tuesday, throughout it all, those closest to Jesus were engaging in one debate, in one argument. It started at the beginning of the week with one of their mamas bringing up the discussion. It kept throughout the week and it even led up to this final moment in the upper room. And here was the debate. Who's the greatest? Who does Jesus like the most? When we all get to heaven, who's going to sit right by him? Who's the teacher's pet? And all this stuff is going on, and it comes to these last final hours. And, and we don't know if anything happened on Wednesday. A lot of people believe that Wednesday is more like a, a rest day because there's no doubt in my mind that Thursday and Friday were the longest days in the disciple in Jesus' life. You have to keep in mind, they woke up Thursday, and they did not go to sleep until he went into the tomb Friday. But throughout it, they were missing what he was trying to teach them for the last three years and so as they sit down at the upper room and at the table, they begin to engage in what is known as the Passover feast. And we'll read this passage here right now. Beginning in chapter 13, <clears throat> we're going to read in verse 1. And we're going to actually go all the way through uh, verse 30. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was now going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand it. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Don't you want to just tell Peter right there in that moment, Hey, Peter, you just don't tell God never. 
Anybody ever learned that lesson yet? Tell God what you're not going to do? Yeah. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus, he's just kind of like, you know, if you're going to start, let's just do the whole thing, right? I mean, don't just do a little, Jesus, go all in if you're going to do the washing thing. See, Peter didn't get it. Well, and there's probably others at this table, but we know Peter's the outspoken one, right? Jesus answered him, or verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do not, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but it is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 12, when he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also to wash one another's feet. See, we wash feet church, right? For I've given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Well, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, and one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to, to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. By the way, this is John, the beloved disciple that's reclining at Jesus' side, and most likely Peter just got rebuked, and so he's kind of, you know, you know, you ever got told you've done something wrong, you kind of shy back from speaking up again. So he's leaning in to John. It says, Lord, who is it? Verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. So some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what you need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Man, what, a, what an event, and this is really just kicking off. If, I encourage you later this afternoon or sometime this week to go ahead and keep reading through chapter 17 of the Gospel of John as Jesus does some more teaching, and, and he has a prayer, and you see in chapter 17, Jesus prays for you and me in the midst of the cross right there. He prays for you. Um, but in this event, the disciples are all gathered in the upper room, and it's not going to be like chairs like what we're sitting right now. They're most likely lounging on the floor. There's going to be maybe a lofted table. There's going to be pillows around. Um, you kind of think like a 70s uh, college dorm, you know, and just everybody's kind of lounging around being cool and hip, and, and they're all enjoying the Passover feast there in verse 1 of chapter 13. There's something we need to understand because if you look in verse 2, it says that it was during the supper. 
Now, since we have kind of a lighter crowd this morning, and uh, does anybody have a different reading besides during the supper? Because there are several different translations of what is said there in verse 2. Anybody have the evening meal was in progress? When it was time for supper? Some of y'all may have when supper had ended. So this is strange because, all right, so I read from the ESV, it says during supper, NIV, the meal was in progress, it was time for supper, or supper had ended. I don't know about you, but I want to know when supper is, right? When I'm invited to supper, I want to know when it is, so when I can be, when I can expect to start eating, I, I like to know what it is. Now, the disciples already knew what was on the meal plan. But when we read Scripture, we need to understand when there's a difference in translations. This is why it's so important when you do your own Bible study to get multiple translations, multiple versions of the Bible, because sometimes some words um, can't fully be captured by one word in English from the original Hebrew or the Greek. Now, here we're dealing with Greek in the New Testament. And so this during supper, the reason there's so many that it was, you know, when supper was in progress or when supper has ended, I want to know, okay, was it during? Was it in the midst of it? Was supper over? When did this happen? And to understand that, I have to understand when, what the custom was for a Jewish supper when it took place. A Jewish supper, the time frame of a Jewish supper was in the act of preparing the meal, the act of serving the meal, and the act of fellowship after the meal. That was all considered supper time. So like at our house, I'm the one who typically cooks the supper. I, I, I have come to enjoy cooking the supper. So during our supper at home, while I'm preparing the meal, the kids are upstairs on the TV. Jamie's sometimes working out. And so that's during supper time, according to Jewish custom. So that's why there's so many different ways it's phrased in different versions of the Bible, because it's trying to capture that there's, this, there's things going on and things are ending and things are beginning. Jesus does not have an ADD moment where like supper's becoming a drag, and so he's got to get up and do something to kind of liven up the conversation and the events of things going on. What it implies here in verse 2 is that one part of the supper was done, meaning most likely the preparation was done, and they're getting ready to move on to the actual Passover meal. Now, why is this important to us? Because it lets us understand some things going on in this passage and why Judas is excused at the moment he is excused. For the Passover meal, there were three suppers, or well, third supper is going to be added tonight. There are two suppers, and Jesus is going to add a third tonight. The first supper was called the common meal. The common meal was when everybody would get together, neighbors, friends, family, co-workers, we would all get together and we would just kind of graze. You know, they were good Baptists at that moment. I mean, you ever been to Baptist potluck and people just kind of graze and grab and we eat and we munch. It's kind of like when you go to the Italian restaurants and they bring bread to your table, right? You can sit there and you can munch. It's not the supper supper, but it's part of the supper. So that was the common meal. That is the morsel to which Jesus gives Judas and then excuses him before the Passover meal. Because the Passover meal, if you look in Exodus chapter 12, was reserved only for family. It was for a household. And so Jesus is excusing Judas because he is not part of the family of God. People wonder, was Judas actually saved and just messed up? Well, Jesus says very clear that not all of you are clean and not all of you are a part of me. And this is a scary passage for me because Judas had been with Jesus for three years. 
He looked like a disciple of Christ. He looked like a believer. He had gone on the mission trips. He had done the things you're supposed to do if you're with Jesus. And what it tells me is there are people, and I was one of them at this point in time, that you can look like a believer. You can be on the roster of a church, and yet you can still miss Jesus. And Jesus, in this moment, after the common meal, when the bread's on the table, he gives the morsel to Judas and says, go do what you have to do. And if you, did you notice that the disciples didn't get it? They still didn't understand what he was doing? They thought maybe he's just excusing Judas to go get more stuff for the meal or the feast or to go give money to the poor? That was from the common meal. Because the Passover is reserved for family, for household. And what Jesus does in this moment, in this room, is he's telling the disciples and those closest to him, I am redefining family. We're having this Passover meal together because I see you now as my family. You're my brothers. We belong to each other. Was it going about? <clears throat> John lets us know some very important things about Jesus there in the beginning of chapter 13, which the Gospel of John is really focused on. The Gospel of John is focusing on understanding that Jesus is equal with God, that he is deity, that he, is, he and the Father are one. And you find that only in the Gospel of John. In the opening of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Let's us know the equality Jesus has with God. And here in chapter 13, as the events begin to, to take place, John lets us know that Jesus, in this moment, knew that his hour had come, in verse 1, to depart of his world. He knew the events that were getting ready to transpire. He knew the roles that people were going to play in the next several hours. He knew about the pain and suffering he was getting ready to have to endure because he was coming to redeem people who were lost in sin. And he knew, verse 2, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And Jesus knew that the Father had given him all things in his hands and that he had come from God. And now he was going to go back to God. See, John wants us to know that Jesus wasn't just a man. He had all these insights, all these things he could only have because he was equal with God and had the knowledge of God, therefore had the authority and the power of God, which is so important in setting up this event. John is hitting on this so we can say, okay, he wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just a moralist or a socialist. He wasn't just a revolutionary or a rebel. Jesus was the Son of God, and yet here is the Son of God in this moment as his closest followers are arguing about who's the greatest, who does he like the most. Jesus gets up from the table before the Passover meal begins. During the supper, he, he goes into the place where he takes the lowest servant of the household, God in the flesh, all authority, who created the heavens and the earth, takes the lowest servant possible. He takes that role on himself, and Peter understands it. See, we want to rebuke Peter. But Peter understands who Jesus is. He understands what Jesus is doing in this moment. And this is why he says, you can't, and you will never wash my feet, Jesus, because I know you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That role is reserved for someone else. 
And so they ended in this conversation about this, this cleansing. Because Peter says, you know, not just my feet, but also my hands and my head in verse 9. And Jesus says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. What Jesus is saying in the, in the Jewish custom is this. Before a Jewish individual could come to the table to eat, they had to wash. And throughout the Jewish cities that have been dug up, we have found what have been called baptismal pools. They're bath waters. And so it was expected when a Jewish individual came home to eat, even if it wasn't Passover, but particularly on Passover, they would be clean. They would take a bath. They would get all the mud and the dirt and the grime off. And if they had the, the funds and the income, they would even change their clothes before they came to the dinner table because all that sweat and all that stuff that they've been doing all day long, they didn't want to bring it to, to the dinner table because that would make it unclean. So they want to keep it clean. So Jesus is saying, well, you've already cleaned yourself. You've already taken the ceremonial washing that is expected of you. You don't need to do that again. I don't need to wash you all over again, Peter. But if I don't wash your feet, then you're not a part of me. Verse 8. You have no share with me. The word share means you have no fellowship with me. And what we can see is in this moment, everyone in this upper room, including Judas, had gone through the ceremonial washing. They'd all gone through the motions. They all did what they thought they were supposed to do. They were all physically prepped for this moment. But Jesus draws out to Peter, look, you've done the ceremony clean. I don't need to clean you of that anymore. But you need to understand, even though I may clean you forever, for eternity, as far as east from the west, removing your sins, the reality is your feet still picks up sin from this world. So you're ceremonially clean, but I want to make you spiritually clean. There are things in you that are still attaching yourself to this world, and, and I want to clean that off regularly off you. It's what the Bible calls our sanctification, our holiness, our setting us apart. So Peter doesn't understand this. But did you notice what Jesus does that I think is so important? The implication is that Peter is the very last disciple that Jesus comes to. He's the one that speaks up. He's outspoken Peter, right? He's passionate. He's convicted. He's going to say what's on his mind. We need Peters in life. Sometimes Peters stick their, their foot in their mouth, right? They just do. Well, as he comes to Peter, and, and if the implication, which it seems to be in the Greek, that Peter's the very last of the disciple, and so he's the last one to speak up. What that means is what did Jesus do before he got to Peter? Whose feet did he wash? The one who betrayed him. Jesus, the Son of God, got down on his hands and knees and washed the dirtiest part of people's bodies. I mean, you got to keep in mind, it's not like tennis shoes and high tops. You're talking sandals, if you can afford them, or barefoot, walking on roads where horses and cattle walk. And I don't know if you've ever been to parade, but there's a reason they put the horses at the end, right? 
And so even though they've been ceremonial clean, that bath was not like a scrubbing. It was just kind of get everything off and then you go. And Jesus gets down and he gets into the nitty gritty, the dirty parts. But he does it for Judas. He does it for the man who he knew would betray him. He does it for the man who he knew when he would come to the garden in a matter of hours, would kiss him on the cheek, which was a sign of devotion and affection. He does it for Judas. And this example for the disciples, an example for us, is that to be the greatest, because that's the discussion, to be the greatest, you have to be willing to go to the lowest places to serve and love people. Peter didn't completely understand that, but Jesus understood who Peter was. That's why when we come to verse 27 or 21, after Jesus has done all this and taught all this, he was deeply troubled in his spirit, meaning his heart was breaking. But the application can be found about the event, beginning in verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So we should be what? We wash feet church. WWF. Yeah. It's not a literal thing, he's saying. He's saying, if, if I, who you know as the Messiah, as the Christ, as God in the flesh, who's come to make God known, that's who you know me as. I'm your teacher and your master. And if I am willing to get down to places where no one else would go, you should do the same. If I've washed your feet, verse 14, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I've done to you. And truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And they understood Jesus was the master, and Jesus was the sender. They understood that it was his role. And Jesus gives us this beautiful example that we are not called to serve people or serve the people that we only like. We're not called to serve people that we only agree with. We're called to serve the people that hurt us, that hurt our feelings, that make us mad, that make us want to put them in their place. The example, Jesus says, you are to do these to them, those who would betray you, those who would be opposed to you and against you, you're to serve them, and you're to serve them in such a way that you're willing not to look at yourself as the greatest, but to lower yourself to the lowest possible place so you can lift them up. That's love. There's a couple things I want us to see. First, this whole spiritual cleansing. I already talked about we're all in need of a spiritual cleansing thing about spiritual cleansings is that we can all do all the things that we think we need to do. 
We can clean up our life. We know, and I'll just speak when I remember I was these guys' age, but you all don't do it because you are angels, and I was like, I was a preacher's kid, so I was the worst. Um, <clears throat> so, Ethan, sorry, you're out of luck, but. <laughs> but, you know, there was, in high school, there was one way I talked with my football buddies that I did not talk at church. You may ever relate to that? There were jokes and words I would use around certain people, but when I got to church, I knew there were certain words that I should not say, and there were certain shirts and things that were not appropriate to be around certain people. And so I would change those things. What would I do? I would ceremonially clean myself. I would, you know, act better, look better, talk better, smile bigger, shake stronger. And some of us, that may be us. We've been ceremonially cleaning ourselves every time we come to church, every time we gather around people that are God's people. We know the things we should do. And here's the thing that's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. We relate to Judas more than anybody else in this passage if that's all we do and all we see of Christianity. We can just put on the part. We can fool even those who are closest to Jesus. But here's the most important thing. Jesus knows. Jesus knows, and he is willing to still wash you. But you've got to surrender. Peter's having surrender issues. And that's a danger we all can be in, that we can go through the spiritual cleansing, but then we hear the words of Jesus in verse 8, that we have no share or fellowship with God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit. So we may have gotten our act together, but spiritually we're lost. That's what that means. Second thing we see in this passage and what Jesus is teaching is that we're all called to serve <clears throat> So we're all called to be spiritually clean and we're all called to spiritually serve. And Jesus didn't, or Peter didn't understand what Jesus was doing, but Paul would probably learn from the teachings of the apostles when he wrote from the Philippians and the guidance of the Spirit. He wrote, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others, and have this mind among yourselves. Hear this which is yours in Christ Jesus. Count others more significant than yourself. Not to look to our own interests, but to look to the interest of others. That's the mind of Christ. I read this story, and, and maybe you're like me as I'm reading this story this week, and you're like me in this moment, and you read it, and you hear the 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 application of it, and you come to aware, be aware that you're not where you should be yet. I am not the servant to which Jesus is calling for in this moment. Anybody else relate to that? Are you all like better, you're more sainthooded than I am? All right, so you should preach. <clears throat> I've been more like Judas. 
sometimes. I've gone through the motions. I, I've, I've done the, the things that look clean. And if I was Jesus in this moment and I knew what Judas was going to do, I, being Jesus in this moment, I mean, if you try to put yourself in that situation. I wouldn't even let Judas into the room, let alone wash his feet. And yet the example here is that we are to be like Jesus. But if I'm honest in this moment, I'd be more like Peter. I'd complain about someone else's service, and, but be unwilling to personally serve myself. I don't know if you ever can relate to that or not. To complain about someone else's service, but unwilling to jump in and serve yourself. Well, if I were to do it, I'd do it this way. Why don't you do it? Nah. There's too many Peters in the church. Peters was, was willing to speak his mind. He was willing to say how he thought things should or shouldn't be done. He was willing to say all the things that he would do. But when it came push to shove... He was unwilling to become a humble servant. And we need Peters in the church. We need people who are willing to speak out their mind and willing to, to say what they think because they help us evaluate the ministries we're doing and how we're serving. We need Peters. But the reality is, is we need people beyond Peter. We need people that can recognize the service and not just complain about the service, but to participate in the service. Did you notice what Peter does? He acknowledges what Jesus is doing in this moment, but nowhere does Peter offer to step in and help. He just wants to add a correcting, correction to it. You should just wash all of me, Jesus, because that'd be the better way to do it. But Jesus, is the example he's given us, we need people. And the reason God has called you here to be a part of Harvest Hill and be a part of this body is because he's called you to serve. He's called you to serve. Every one of you from our students to our adults are called to serve and be a part of this body. And if we're looking at all the service going on and saying, well, I don't need to do that. We're just like Peter in this moment. We are limiting God and what God wants to do in our life and what God wants to do in this church. The Bible says, and Jesus gives the example, we are all called to serve. And a spiritual servant doesn't serve out of convenience. He doesn't serve out of expecting recognition. And they don't serve out of believing that they are above the act of service. Well, it's just the kitchen crew. And I mean, right, Cindy? I mean, it's just a nursery. I don't really have kids. But you remember when you did. You remember how hard and how much of a reprieve that was for parents? When you could take your kid to, to nursery or take your kid to children's church and you could be in worship and you could actually connect with God so you could be the better parent you needed to be during the week for your kids? Man, we need people to serve. We need people to say, you know what? I'm willing to go to the lowest. I'm willing to change the diaper. I'm willing to play with the kid. I'm willing to show this kid that they're important. And I don't have to have all the answers. Didn't you like this about Peter? I love this about Peter. 
He gets it completely wrong, and yet Jesus still uses him. Serving isn't about having it right all the time. It's just being willing to be obedient and to submit. And you may have a fear in you, but I don't know if I can do that, but we, we need people who can step in and say, you know what, I can't do this, but I know God can do it through me. So I'm going to have to submit to God in this moment so he receives the glory and not me. That's service. And so I really, really, really want you to pray about where God wants you to be plugged in because you're not to be plugged into every aspect of this church. And we have people who are doing that. And the problem is they're going to get burned out. But we all pick up the slack. The final thing is we are to have spiritual joy. This is what Jesus teaches through this event. We are to have spiritual joy. Verse 16 and 17, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That word blessed means a spiritual joy. It's, it's, a, it's not a happiness or an emotion of excitement. It's a spiritual joy, meaning it's something that the world does not give us, and therefore the world cannot take away from us. And it comes through, do you catch it? Through the act of service. So it begins in humbleness, leads to holiness, and the end result is happiness or spiritual joy. How's your service been? Where are you plugged in at? You may be like Peter in this moment, you're like, well, someone else can do it. Or maybe you're on the outside and you're like Peter and you say, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. Jesus calls us to serve. And there's one final thing I want us to hit on before we wrap up. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet, when he had served them, he put on his outer garments and he resumed his place. What was his place? Jesus was the guest of honor. His place would have been at that time the head of the table, which would have been the center of the table. So he goes to the lowest, lets him know that he's willing to go to that place to serve people and let the love of God be known. And then he resumes his place of authority and power and his place of honor. And that's the strange thing about serving I found in my own life, and you see throughout scriptures, when we're willing to serve people no matter where they come from or what background they have or how much they disagree with our views in life and convictions in life, but we're willing to serve them no matter what, God receives the glory. And for some reason, God glorifies the servant. It is so weird why this works. But you find churches that are impacting the most in this world for the kingdom of God is because that church has a servant heart for the kingdom. It's not about them. It's about putting God on display and his glory be reigned, that he would be in his place and we as his people would be in our place. That he'd be glorified. We also find this incredible illustration here at this dinner table. Jesus goes to the lowest role 
and then resumes his place. And that's exactly what he did for us. He stepped out of eternity, became flesh and dwelt among us, went to a cross to take our punishment for sin upon himself, becoming the lowest possible form before a holy God. And God's wrath was pushed and, and pushed upon him. And they placed him in tomb, but he rose again. Hence, we celebrate Easter in a couple weeks. And you know where he is now? He resumed his place. The right hand of the Father. And you may be here this morning, and you know you've been going through the motions, and you, you haven't really accepted Christ. You, you've done all the church things. But now in this moment, you realize, you know what? I can't do that anymore. I don't want to be a Judas I want to be clean through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone because I believe that he came and took the lowest of servants, taking my sin upon himself, dying for it and rising again. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. He has resumed his place and his promise of his word is he's coming back soon and very soon. And I want to be a part of him, a part of that fellowship. If that's you this morning, we're going to have a time of invitation. I'm going to ask Mike to come up. Um, I'm going to lead us in a song. It's a song I think we're familiar with called Jesus Paid It All. And if you're here this morning like, well, I want to, I want to be saved. I want, I want to make sure I'm not just going through the motions. I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior, my master and my teacher. I'm going to ask you to come up and talk to Mike and just say, hey, I want to be saved. What do I need to do? And he's probably going to lead you through a prayer and just talk with you. Maybe you're here this morning and you know that, you know what? I know I have Jesus, I know I'm saved, I know I have the Spirit, but my heart is not really a servant heart right now. I want more recognition for what I'm doing. I want to be in the, the big part of the church and the big ministries. I don't want to do nursery or children's church or student ministry. I want to go to camp with these guys for a week. That's not vacation. Purgatory, right? But maybe God has been pressing something upon your heart to get plugged in somewhere and you just keep resisting and resisting. You keep telling God and Jesus, no. No. Just like Peter. God has brought you to this place of understanding you need to surrender. I got to admit, here's my confession to you. I woke up this morning knowing the message I had to preach about servanthood, and uh, I waited till it was the appropriate time to wake my wife up because I wake up a lot earlier. Um, but when she was awake and had a couple of drinks of coffee, I've, I'm slowly learning. It's not like to jump right into conversation as soon as I see your eyes open. I'm doing better, right? Slowly. I mean, come on. It's only been, what, coming on 17 years? So i got a lot of time to work on it. But I had to confess to her as I was praying over you all this morning and what God wanted to say to us all and what he's been trying to teach me this week. It's funny how this message applied to me because yesterday I was a Peter. And last night I told the 80s I was a Judas. My heart was not one about serving. My heart was about what about me? Tired? It's past my bedtime. I want to go home. 
yesterday afternoon at, at, at home. It wasn't about serving or loving my family the way the Bible tells me to. I've done enough this week. I deserve a day to just sit on the couch. I miss a beautiful day, incredible opportunity to spend with my family. And I came across as grumpy. That was my words. I can't say her words. No. Just kidding. <laughs> so that's my confession to you is I don't have it all figured out. And that's why I look at this passage and I know that God is still working on me to, to, for my holiness and my sanctification so that he might be glorified. And so if you're here this morning and you're struggling with it too, understand I understand. Mike understands. We don't have it figured out. We're not perfect. But God still wants to do a good work in us. And part of that is just come to this place where I'm going to surrender and say, okay, God, whatever you want to do, I'm in because you are all in for me. And so as we sing this song of invitation, Jesus paid it all, that's our reminder. Maybe you're here this morning and you just need to accept Jesus for the first time. Well, he paid it all for you too. The Bible says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that may be where you are this morning. You've cleaned yourself up. You've said the right words while you're here. You even dressed the part. But you know you don't have fellowship with the Father at this moment. So I'm going to invite you to come. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask Mike to come up. If you don't want to talk to Mike, maybe you just want to kneel before the Father. I invite you to do that as well. But if you want to talk about having Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Mike will be here. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for taking care of us. 